Welcome to Q Talks, a podcast series by QTAC, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This recording is from a live webinar that was held on the 27th of April 2020 with Ozan Oskaral discussing the economic and geopolitical consequences of COVID-19. Hi everyone, thank you for joining us today to hear from Ozan Oskaral. Um, we'll get started now, but please do continue, continue to let us know where you're listening from today. So this is the first webinar collaboration between the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club and the Cambridge University Venture Capital and Private Equity Society. I'm Shreya. And I'm Shelby. And we're your hosts for this evening. And we're very happy to have Ozan Oskaral with us for this event. Um, so the, fir- the format of this is going to be the first 20 minutes or so Ozan will be giving us um, a presentation. And during this time, please do post questions in the chat. Um, and Shelby and I will be asking some of your questions to Ozan in the final 40 minutes or so of the webinar. So keep those questions rolling in. And before we start, we wanted to say, wanted to very quickly mention the groups that are involved in making this event happen for you. So first, first of all, we've got Q Talks by QTech, which is a leading how-to podcast series for tech founders and aspiring innovators. We've had some incredible guests so far, including founders, investors, and experts. And this webinar is our first live event as part of Q Talks. So if you're feeling bored like me during quarantine, or looking for new content, then please do check out the podcast um, at the link that's on the screen, or you can scan the QR code. And I'll put the QR code up at the end as well. The other society initiating this event is the Venture Capital and Private Equity Society at Cambridge University. We're a society which is passionate about educating students about the fascinating world of investing in private companies. This year, we're very we were very pleased to launch a volunteer program called Due Diligence Projects, where we use our discipline-relevant expertise to diligence early-stage companies for Cambridge-based VCs and accelerators. Please feel free to follow us on Facebook to learn how to get involved, and that's at C-U-B-C-P-E. And now to introducing Ozan, the guy that we're all here for. Ozan is the longest-standing friend and lecturer of the Venture Capital and Private Equity Society, and a man that hardly needs an introduction. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Tonto Capital Partners, a private credit fund and a boutique advisory firm since 2015. Ozan started his career 18 years ago as a management trainee at Unilever, where he rose to become a business group finance manager, and also qualified as a chartered management accountant. He then trained at Merrill Lynch in 2005 as an investment banker, focusing on structured financing, distressed debt trading, and principal investments. Ozan subsequently rose through the ranks and later on ran part of the emerging markets and origination team. Throughout his time at Merrill Lynch, Ozan originated and managed transactions totaling close to 50 billion US dollars. Subsequently, leaving the firm in 2012 to set up and run the Turkish 
and part of the emerging markets business of Russia's second largest bank, VTB Capital, before co-founding Tonto Capital Partners. Ozan has been appointed to the Foreign Policy Leadership Council of the Brookings Institution, a Washington DC based think tank in 2017, and is a regular participant at the Davos World Economic Forum, the annual World Bank IMF, and the UN General Assembly meetings. He is a regular contributor to Bloomberg, CNBC Squawk Box, and frequently pins op-eds for the Business Week magazine. Over the past few years, Ozan has been interviewed by the likes of broadcasting legend Larry King, as well as by the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eric Lipton for the, from the New York Times. We're looking forward to hearing what Ozan has to think about COVID-19 and the economy. Thank you for joining us, Ozan. Well, Shelby, thank you. And I must say, you can always introduce me anywhere else from now on. That, that was a, a fantastic, really. But thank you so much. And thank you, everyone. Uh, it's wonderful to uh, be a part of this yet again, and this time reaching over to 500 people around the globe. Uh, some I know and some that I don't know. Uh, but nonetheless, I think uh, it's fair to say that we live in momentous times. And now, more than ever, it's very important to to communicate, to connect, and to try to make some sense of what is going on uh, in the markets. Uh, and that's what I shall aim to do in the first 20 minutes of the presentation. And as it always uh, used to be the case in the physical lectures, um, the more interaction we have later down the line, the better it is. Uh, so I will aim to keep it as succinct and as short as possible. But before we start, um, I think it's fair to uh, just underline that every crisis have, has a human element. And we always try to um, work around and circumnavigate the eternal dance between fear and greed that has always happened since the beginning of time. And today is not any different. Um, this time, uh, <laughs> different to other crises that I certainly have been through, which 2008 was the main one, uh, this is um, one that affects a much wider audience uh, all around the world. It is not just a financial crisis. It is not just a corporate crisis, but it is something that impacts every one of us, our families, uh, our well-being, uh, and our livelihoods. Uh, so um, I just wanted to highlight that and the importance of this before diving into more uh, technical, economic, and geopolitical elements of this, because it is easy uh, whilst analyzing numbers to, um, to forget the, the human impact. And I think we should never forget the human impact. Um, you know, um, we are right now collectively uh, in an anxious state facing the pandemic. Uh, however, as someone that has been in the eye of the storm in 2008 global financial crisis, um, when we all thought that the world was coming to an end, um, I can assure you the world is not coming to an end. And I remain optimistic that, about the result of the human spirit in the long run and the fact that we shall prevail. Now, having said that, um, you know, I'm an investor, uh, and the questions that I've been getting over the past uh, six, seven weeks, uh, both as Tanto Capital Partners and as myself, has focused around, obviously, how to invest and how to analyze uh, risk uh, in the chaos that we live in. But before we get there, let's just start with an admission uh, that I think is fair to make. No one in the world right now knows exactly 
what is going to transpire over the next weeks, months, or years. I think it's important to acknowledge that fact when trying to um, opine on uh, how to circumnavigate the challenges that lies ahead as an investor. Now, let's also take a quick look at a pre-COVID-19 um, modus operandi and where we were uh, as a world um, just over two and a half months ago. Uh, from a social and economic backdrop uh, perspective, um, you know, the banking sector was in a much better shape than it was 12 years ago when the financial crisis, global financial crisis had transpired. Although uh, there were increasing uh, concerns around the, uh, the amount of leverage uh, that we were again, once again seeing, and not just this time in terms of bank balance sheets, but in balance sheets of households and corporates. Um, perhaps what's more interesting is the, uh, the social and the geopolitical background that we uh, were in before COVID-19. Look, given the, the dominance of social media and the uh, incredible asset price bubble that followed through the 2008 crisis, where the distribution of capital was not done fairly, the asset price bubble basically meant that people that had assets became richer and people that did not have assets remained where they are. So, you know, there was a gap between the rich getting richer and the less rich staying put as they were. Uh, combined with the fact that we all now live in an interconnected society where everyone knows what everybody else is doing, we were already facing um, the rise in populism uh, driven by uh, the fact that, you know, people were just fed up of seeing how the other half lived. Uh, that meant that we were already focusing and kind of getting more towards a less globalized uh, world um, with the rise of nationalism and becoming prevalent in many different countries. And we'll understand why that's relevant when we go down to um, kind of following through what, the, what this means for the investment uh, cycle. Also, we were already in the middle of a, um, uh, a growing US-China trade war. Arguably, the only geopolitical battle that really matters from a strategic perspective in the long run is uh, the battle between US and I will say US plus the liberal Western world for lack of a better word versus China. Um, also, uh, there were a number of increasing proxy wars around the region. We heard little, but nonetheless, lives were being lost. And there I look at more uh, the Middle East, uh, in Yemen, in Lebanon, in Iraq, Syria, the human cost was already increasing. And finally, um, if you take a look at closer to home and we look at the European Union, we already had Brexit. Uh, that was um, something that was quite contagious for people that live in the UK and the other side. And European Union, um, uh, as uh, my uh, dear friend, Marco Carnelos, who's a prominent diplomat, had uh, told me the other day, was already facing the um, movement towards a two-speed Europe, you know, a Europe that will and most likely will become more fragmented. So the backdrop wasn't exactly um, benign before the whole COVID-19 debacle started. So before we move on to the questions that, uh, that I get asked um, uh, around investments, two points to, to raise. Number one, oil prices. I'm sure all of you are aware that we stepped into um, what we call negative oil price territory just last Monday. And obviously the question is, well, how could you have negative oil prices? What does that mean? It is a notion that we refer to as contango or forwardation, which effectively means that the future price of a commodity is higher than 
uh, what it is right now, which means also uh, that investors are expecting an upward sloping um, kind of uh, forward curve, if you will, or pricing that in at the moment. Now, the petroleum industry is fundamentally very important, obviously, financially, but also geopolitically. So the question is, how did we come here? Now, uh, it's uh, also fair to underline that in 2019, roughly 40% of the rise in demand on oil came from China. That's a significant portion of your rise in demand coming from a single country. So clearly, after COVID-19, that demand fell away. Uh, what then happened, of course, is that the, 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 governance, uh, the governing bodies around supply, which is predominantly what we call OPEC+, plus, which is OPEC plus Russia, um, plus US and Norway, um, decided to move. However, they did not move fast enough to uh, create a, a bottom for the supply. And therefore, we found ourselves uh, in a situation where just last Monday, traders realized that actually, despite of all the oil cuts that people have agreed to, uh, to instigate, uh, the world faces a significant oversupply of oil that is likely to remain uh, as is going forward throughout the year. Um, just to give you some numbers, uh, before the COVID-19, the world was consuming roughly around 100 million barrels of oil a day. Uh, demand is now somewhere between 65 to 70 million barrels a day. So in the worst case scenario, about a third of the global output of oil needs to be shut. That's an important factor to keep in mind. Um, and one final point about the, the geopolitical challenges. Uh, let's not forget that we are in a U.S. election cycle uh, this year, which obviously drives uh, a lot of the U.S. Um, policy making vis-a-vis -vis both foreign policy but also what this means in terms of the presence of uh, U.S. leadership uh, in a global crisis uh, where arguably uh, the world more than ever needs larger, wealthier countries to um, act in a coordinated fashion uh, and work together uh, to help us uh, see through this crisis. And right now, unfortunately, in the U.S., we can safely say, and this is not taking any size, whether you're a Trump supporter or not Trump supporter, it is fair to say that local election dynamics will um, be a priority, which will determine how the U.S. potentially reacts into um, or towards um, a global concern around COVID-19. Now, now that that's out of the way, moving on to uh, the economic uh, part of the, uh, the equation. So there are four questions that I got asked uh, that I can actually kind of solidly remember over the course of the past six, seven weeks. Question number one. How will growth be impacted as a result of COVID-19? Um, you know, I think it's fair to say that the growth overall around the world will decline. Um, but what is important is, and what, what a lot of investors don't necessarily acknowledge right now, is that we are also going to be doing this whilst going through a massive deleveraging cycle, um, uh, which is unlike the downturn in 2008, uh, will actually uh, make this much more of a corporate um, crisis rather than just a financial crisis. So the road ahead will most certainly be a bumpy one. Um, China's strategy of containment of the COVID-19 um, was quite unique, to say the least. Uh, so uh, no other country has really been able to replicate the same 
um, speed and I guess strength of containment in the developed world, which also means that the um, the growth contraction uh, will mostly come through the services economy, including travel, leisure, uh, which obviously affects um, U.S. and Europe uh, significantly more than does Asia. Um, COVID-19 is an unprecedented shock to the system uh, that could result in significantly negative GDP quarters. Uh, I think roughly uh, most investors are pricing a GDP um, decline of 12 to 15% in the U.S. alone, which considering the size of the U.S. economy is, is just beyond um, anything that we have seen uh, so far. Uh, just to give you an idea, in the global financial crisis in 2018, the GDP contraction was only 4%. So this is more than three times the amount of GDP contraction that we are pricing in for the U.S. alone in this crisis. So it gives you an idea of how significant and massive the, the challenges will be. Um, interestingly, uh, large emerging markets like China and India are going to contain or continue rather having positive GDP growth, albeit at a much lower levels than uh, we thought before. Um, so you can see how um, the world is kind of being divided also in terms of uh, which countries will grow and which countries uh, will not. Um, now, one important factor in this, this crisis is requiring all governments around the world uh, to step up and to get involved uh, a, like never before. But unlike the previous crisis, this will not be a situation where governments just can uh, flood the world with money, which they will. But in this case, the money has to go directly to recapitalize the household balance sheets and not just the bank balance sheets. Uh, because frankly, um, we just don't know how long this will last. And we all need money to survive, to spend, and therefore to keep some sense of normality of the the, the capitalist system that we have all been uh, living under for the past 75, uh, close to 80 years. So the deleveraging that we're going to go through will take years, not months. So therefore, question number one answered, uh, how will this impact growth? Unfortunately, very negatively in the Western world uh, and actually just negatively in general around the world. So question number two, as an investor, can you price the risk um, that we are uh, facing right now? And the answer is not perfectly. I mean, at, at any given moment, even in the best case scenario, um, it is difficult to price risk unless you can understand the risk that you're facing. And right now, um, even in the high yield markets uh, in the US, implied default ratings are somewhere around uh, 12 to 15%, uh, which is um, significantly higher than the historical average of 6%, which means that you know, we are now approaching uh, levels that are close to the global financial crisis level in 2008. Um, you know, the question is, if you can't price it, will you buy it? Uh, we are focusing much more on the uh, importance of being able to go long credit. Uh, credit is something that you can price easier than equity in a market like this. Because frankly, right now, even though we witnessed a, a significant rally in the stock market, um, uh, I don't buy that too much because it is very difficult to understand the real impact of what we are going through until we see corporate earnings uh, around the world uh, that are going to be coming out uh, over the course of this week and next week 
And so until that, it is very difficult uh, to, to kind of price that risk. And it's something worthwhile uh, remembering is that in terms of our leverage, our, our, our borrowing, um, the, world, the world debt loads are roughly around 242% of GDP right now, uh, versus uh, their previous peak of 210% in 2007. So it just gives you an idea as to how levered the entire world is, which makes it very difficult to price equity right now, um, but uh, easier, relatively easier to price uh, credit uh, for the time being. So question number three, um, you know, can we apply some of the lessons that we have learned uh, from the past crisis uh, onto this crisis right now? And if so, what are those uh, lessons? I would say number one, uh, economic growth is likely to get worse in the near term. Um, so S&P 500 peak growth fell roughly about 34% in the COVID-19 crisis so far. That decline sounds a lot. Uh, that decline sounds significantly material, and it is. But compared to the previous crisis, we are not close to where the bottom could be. Uh, in 2000-2001 crisis, the dot-com uh, bubble burst, uh, the decline was 51%. Uh, in uh, 1929, the, the Great Depression, the decline was 86%. This is a once-in-a-century pandemic. So it is entirely plausible that uh, what we are witnessing right now is a bear market rally and the, the future declines will be there. However, I don't think and we don't think the decline will be any uh, more than historical averages. It's just that we are saying that there is still some way to go until we achieve uh, those historical average levels yet. Um, so within private equity, what does that mean? Um, we forecast a significant amount of uh, divestment activity, rescue financings, liquidity bridges, restructurings, uh, and industry roll-ups coming our way. Uh, so uh, if one is capitalized well enough, and that is going to be uh, the trick here, uh, opportunities will present themselves. However, uh, I think uh, it's fair to say that we have to be patient and plugged in to the deleveraging cycle to be able to make uh, meaningful investments and that time uh, is not uh, yet upon us exactly. Um, so question number four, and then we'll take questions from the audience. Uh, what does this all mean for key investment themes, right? So, you know, how do you allocate? Where do you, where do you invest? Um, one thing I would say is keeping cash has never been uh, this important. Now, normally as an investor, you do not want to keep so much cash because it gives you what we call a negative yield, negative carry rather. Um, but in this case, given that the significant returns are going to be made by buying assets when the asset price collapse uh, takes place, uh, keeping cash is not just a prudent uh, metric to be able to protect yourself against bankruptcy because the reality is a lot of your competition will go bankrupt. A lot of companies, of course, a lot of sectors that are thinly capitalized will not survive this crisis. So if you are cashed up, if you can survive, by doing just that, you are going to capture market share. Plus, you will be able to um, buy assets in the cheap uh, when they come to the market. That's number one. So keep uh, as much cash as plausible. And, of course, you have to have some yield enhancement. 
And there, um, I think the idea is to be able to focus on credit, um, uh, develop market credit, as well as an element, albeit selectively, uh, going into some emerging market uh, countries, not all, but those, uh, such as I would say probably Mexico, Brazil, uh, and potentially Turkey, where um, the manufacturing sectors of these countries will benefit from the fallout from uh, the world's relationship with Chinese producers. The world is going to be looking to diversify its production, uh, its supply chain, away from being dependent solely on China. And there are only a handful of countries in emerging markets, such as Turkey, Mexico, and Brazil, that could handle uh, the manufacturing uh, demand that will come our way. So with that, uh, I will just end my uh, analysis and uh, take questions. Hi, Ozan. Really, thank you so much for that. Um, we have a question from um, Shilin Chen about how long will it take for global demand to recover, both for oil and for other things like commercial goods? Okay. So I, th I think it depends on what we mean by recover. Um, you know, the look, even pre-COVID-19, the oil demand uh, had passed its peak. Uh, we are going through a paradigm shift of uh, how we um, consume, how we travel, and that already was putting uh, pressure on the oil prices. So if the question is, will oil recover to prices of, uh, you know, uh, $70, $80, $90, I think it's highly unlikely. Um, but in terms of recovering back into some sort of a normality, which let's just say is around the $40 range, um, I really think that it is going to uh, take place over the course of next, um, you know, 12 to 18 months. Although I do want to put a caveat there saying this is a part of the, this crisis that makes it very difficult to price any um, strategy because we just don't know when we're going to be able to travel again. You know, uh, if, if the countries right now suddenly say, guys, okay, this was just, um, you know, a, a quick crisis. Okay, it's all over now. But we haven't yet found a cure uh, or, a, or a vaccine for COVID-19. Will people, A, be um, kind of motivated to travel? Do they want to really get onto those cramped plane seats uh, and then travel somewhere else? And two, will they have the money to travel? So I think this will take uh, a significant amount of time to recover. Now, a part of that answer to that question is demand related. From a price perspective, uh, the world oil infrastructure is not something you can just shut off or cut quickly. Uh, it, is, it works on a more of a dimmer switch rather than a light switch. Uh, so kind of being conscious of that, I would probably um, conservatively say that we are in this um, uh, range of oil prices uh, for the foreseeable future, which is, I would say, probably the next 12 months. Okay, we have another question from Judy Zhu. Uh, do you reckon de developed and developing countries will spend more or less on infrastructure after the COVID crisis? Yes, absolutely. Uh, especially the healthcare infrastructure is going to be obviously quite an important one. Uh, you know, um, traditionally, uh, you know, independent of the COVID-19 crisis, if one takes a look at the ultra-micro demographics of the fact that the world population is growing, 
you will always need uh, energy infrastructure, communication infrastructure, agricultural food supply infrastructure, and now obviously an enhanced focus on healthcare infrastructure, which by the way, is going to be another way where governments can look to create jobs that uh, this crisis otherwise shed as a result of that. So uh, definitely they will. Okay, uh, another question from Kareem Merchant. Will quantitative easing have the desired results in freeing up liquidity to buffer Western economies? Um, if it's, well, it depends on which Western economies we're talking about. And here uh, we face an interesting scenario where not all countries are the same. Not all countries are as powerful or as wealthy as the others. Um, so to the extent of will countries, by the way, Western countries or otherwise, will countries um, kind of print money? Yes. Monetary policy in the Western world, uh, really, uh, there's nothing much left to speak of because rates are at historical lows. But fiscal policy uh, will be key. QE will continue. Uh, countries will flood the market uh, with as much liquidity as it takes because they have to. Because don't forget, this is not a crisis that is limited to a bunch of bankers uh, or people in the financial services sector. This impacts everyone. Uh, they have to print money and they have to use banks as SPVs, if you will, to recapitalize the entire uh, household balance sheets. So to that end, they will print money. Will it work? Well, it really very much depends on how quickly we can get back on our feet and head towards some sense of normalization. Uh, and we will all see that. There is no clear answer to that question, unfortunately, more than that. Mm. And on that note, um, the UK government, as you know, is two trillion pounds in debt. The US government is 27 trillion dollars in debt. How can governments bail out society? And if COVID lasts a year, are we able to infinitely borrow to avoid an economic depression? Well, the, answer, the short answer is you will have to. And uh, to the extent, look, again, here, for example, the U.S. government is in a much more um, stronger position than any other government because, frankly, U.S. dollar, as you've been saying in all of our previous lectures, U.S. dollar is the only reserve currency uh, in the world, which means that, theoretically, U.S. can print dollars and spend anywhere else in the world. Um, so that's what will happen. And, yes, the, 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 the borrowing levels and debt levels will increase, but that's only because it has to. Now, to kind of answer that question from a different dimension, I think this will bring about a paradigm shift in how we govern, uh, how we live, how we work. And um, so the COVID, from that perspective, COVID-19 uh, has been a catalyst uh, to uh, magnifying um, the existing winds of change that we were all facing as a society. Uh, you know, uh, perhaps the way that governments will uh, work will change. Because actually, in effect, even though they're not calling it this, what is happening is that certain strategic companies in certain strategic sectors are being nationalized and will end up being nationalized. Now, we will not call it that because that's a bad word to use, but in effect, that is what's going to happen. So to that end, um, yeah, we will, we will have to um, uh, print money and, and, and save everyone, unfortunately or fortunately in this case. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have a question from Jack Spencer from Exergy Capital. Um, he's wondering if you might be able to shed some light on your thoughts with regards to private market fundraising 
and the wider LP landscape within EMEA and in sure. this current crisis in half to 2020? Look, that's a, that's a very good question. And um, it's a space that we operate under. And by the way, we are going through uh, similar processes in trying to raise capital from different LPs to be able to uh, benefit from the, the asset price contraction that will come about. It is not easy. And, uh, and this is where the disconnect is. Because right now, the developed markets, so the, the, the more liquid or more risk-free markets have gone through significant dislocation. So a lot of the LPs and a lot of the funds have basically been looking at, look, how can we benefit and how can we make money from the asset, the asset classes and the sectors that are less risky than the emerging markets? So unfortunately, this means two things. Yes, LPs will come back to look at uh, allocating capital to emerging markets because it is a significant asset class space that you just cannot not allocate capital to. Uh, but timing of it uh, is not going to be immediately right now. It's going to be an iterative process. And by the way, it will be much more selective uh, than it was before. So, you know, focusing on distress, focusing on anything that is asset-backed, anything that can create cash flows that, you know, has some collateral behind it, anything uh, that is in countries that, again, will partially benefit from the fallout between the West and China in terms of supply chain. And number two, there will be repricing. And that is what you're seeing right now in the market. So, you know, if you're an LP and, uh, you know, right now in this current market, um, you are making 18, 20% in the US, you're going to ask for 30, 35, 40% in developed markets, emerging markets. Have the asset prices come down that much in emerging markets? Not yet. So I foresee the asset price contraction uh, becoming significantly more pronounced in emerging markets. And to answer his question, you know, um, the challenge right now for funds like ourselves is to be able to convince LPs to fund right now and then to wait. But it is very tough, very tough. And in the same vein, uh, Nathan Howell was asking about um, the appetite of ESG-based investment in public and private markets and how this will be affected by COVID-19 and also how you plan on adjusting your own investment strategy after the crisis. Yes, very good question. Uh, ESG investing have, has never been so relevant. And I think its relevance will uh, continue to, uh, to increase and smart fund managers will look to tap into being able to allocate uh, ESG capital. Uh, and by the way, also, uh, it's important to differentiate here between ESG and impact investments, investing. Most people tend to kind of confuse that. ESG is something that a lot of funds and a lot of um, institutions have paid lip service to. Uh, it is kind of uh, easy money, cheap money, but not necessarily free money. Uh, whereas impact investment is also going to pick up significantly and to those funds that can uh, meaningfully structure um, on-the-ground operations in countries that do need uh, ESG financing and impact investment financing, uh, provided that they can use a, a method we call blended financing, uh, will do well out of it. But absolutely, uh, money going towards ESG uh, will continue to rise. Mm. We have a question from Iona Harrison. 
What impact will COVID-19 have on inequality in comparison to previous shocks in the 20th century? For example, World Wars one and two. I mean, uh, you know, it's difficult for me to compare, uh, you know, re realistically how inequality was impacted in World War One and Two. But unfortunately, we do face a reality that look, this crisis or the healthcare part of this crisis does not discriminate um, poor versus rich, you know, um, ethnicity, sexuality, religion, background uh, doesn't doesn't um, does not differentiate. However. As with all crises, people that have come into this and found themselves in a cash-rich position will be much better off than those people that are poorer and uh, that need the cash. So from that perspective, yes, like in any crisis, the inequalities in the world, unfortunately, will uh, most likely magnify. Amy Stowe is asking about what the new world order will look like. Will there be a change in supply chains? Will there be more or less consumerism? How will our consumer habits be affected by AI and tech? Look, I mean, again, pre-COVID-19, um, that question is valid, uh, very valid, even, even pre-COVID-19. I mean, you know, um, AI, machine learning, especially blockchain, uh, in time, will come and change the way we live, we spend, we work, we interact. Um, and what COVID-19, I think, will do in this case, again, will be a catalyst to, to push humankind into being digitalized, for lack of a better word. Um, now, that is quite a contagious topic. If one were to come uh, and say, guys, you know what, let's all just put chips in you uh, and then let's all kind of be a part of the Internet of Things and Internet of Everything, there will be significant pushback in saying, I don't want to have a chip in my body. One can never know. Maybe this will be uh, the push that through the healthcare dimension of digitalization will actually um, significantly change the way we are a part of the system. Now, how does that impact spending habits, uh, consumer behavior? Uh, I think throughout this crisis, one paradigm shift that we have all had, for example, is that, you know, we don't necessarily need to spend as much money on corporate travel as we thought that we needed to do before. Now, we will spend some money, but not as much money. We don't need to spend as much money in uh, traveling from uh, home to work because guess what? I think going forward, uh, you know, people's approach towards working from home uh, will change and has changed already fundamentally. So what does that mean? Obviously, the consumer spending habits will change in line with the new way that we are going to work and commute. And I think those, those uh, two things are here to stay. We have a question from Rocco de Amaro. Are the euro bonds, so-called corona bonds, going to help finance actions needed to support economic activities? The short answer is yes, they will. Um, again, those corona bonds, um, uh, which are kind of similar to, I guess, you know, uh, war bonds, uh, are going to be uh, a primary mechanism uh, through which governments and sovereigns will borrow in the market. You see, in this crisis, and especially for those countries that are less well-off and are in the emerging markets realm, it is the, the government's job to be able to borrow 
and then to recapitalize their respective industries. Corporate borrowers will find it very difficult unless they are top tier corporate borrowers, which I'm talking about US and European kind of blue chip names, will find it very difficult to borrow in the capital markets. And if they do, the pricing is going to be punitive. So I think governments uh, will do the borrowing uh, for most corporate sectors and therefore, you know, the, the COVID bonds, corona bonds um, will be a mechanism. Helen Poon is asking, how will the deleveraging affect returns that PE firms can generate? It's a good question. Um, because, you know, traditionally, a lot of the returns were uh, magnified by being able to tap the leverage market. Look, PE firms, again, uh, will have to focus uh, not on leverage anymore, uh, but being able to work on um, divestments, uh, restructuring balance sheets, uh, you know, um, and therefore looking at uh, going into those firms where if the fundamental going concern of that business will not have been affected uh, post-COVID-19, and that is the big if, by the way. Uh, so, side note, a lot of the firms and a lot of the companies right now are and should get together with their board of directors and have a hard, long look as to whether their current business models will be feasible uh, for the new normal. Having said that, uh, even if they are relevant, a lot of them that are going to have financial funding difficulties, uh, but where their underlying business model is a healthy one, uh, will be available for uh, acquisition. And therefore, that will drive the price of those firms down. And that's where private equity firms can really continue creating value. Max Antcliffe has a question. You mentioned that investment opportunities will start to present themselves at some point. Are there any particular sectors you think this will be true for? for and when do you see this playing out? Look, the van is a, is, is a difficult one, but suffice it to say that I think the opportunities for those investors that can have access will be uh, through their connectivity with the banks. Because a lot of the, the fire sale, if you will, will take place uh, through the bank's balance sheets. The timing, uh, one cannot really know so well. It depends on jurisdiction, depends on the sector, depends on, um, you know, on, the, on the country. Uh, in terms of what sectors will Will benefit now you know I, I i would kind of separate that into uh, one distressed and the other uh, technology clearly it's logical to say that communication tech healthcare biotechnology agri-tech um, those things are going to be um growing and therefore uh, there'll be positive differentiation in terms of those asset classes when it comes to distressed uh, I think real estate will suffer. Uh, commercial real estate will most likely, most certainly suffer, you know, aviation, tourism. However, aviation and tourism will come back. Uh, aviation is a bit more difficult to price because, you know, uh, uh, aviation firms have huge fixed costs that they cannot really get out of. Therefore, in this crisis, what we will see in the aviation sector is that a lot of the national carriers will be uh, saved and they will actually become nationalized for lack of a better word budget airlines will go out of business it's very dangerous to pick one up unless you know exactly when the market will open but there may be opportunities there when it comes to tourism assets i think uh 
that is quite that may end up being quite attractive because I refuse to believe that we are going to stop traveling and stop uh, going on holidays uh, once this crisis has passed. So therefore, it may be a good time to uh, look at picking up uh, some assets from, from that sector. But timing is very difficult to, um, to forecast. We've got a question from Sihaim Bentaleb. Sorry if I said your name wrong. Um, that some experts state that we will be witnessing a world less globalized after this pandemic. Do you agree with this? And what do you think the consequences will be on globalization? Look, I mean, uh, I agree. Uh, by that, what I mean is that we're going to be living in a, or shifting towards a, uh, what we call a multipolar world, um, where the global footprint includes more distinct regional connectivity than it did before. And that is natural. Uh, that's a natural consequence of what is going on here. Now, we all, you know, we are all now interconnected. Uh, there is no escape from the macro trend towards increased globalization going forward. But in the short term, uh, power bases will change. Uh, interdependence on uh, any production, for example, on any one country will no longer be um, a good thing. It is entirely plausible that countries will... Um, rebrand uh, certain sectors strategically important and therefore uh, increase protectionist um, behavior around those sectors. So yes, we are moving towards a multipolar world. And um, what that means is that um, we are going to be living in a less certain world for a time being. Just to add on to that uh, personal question that I have, um, do you think that by the by more people working from home and being able to have such international international conversations such as we're having but also professionally that might have an impact on globalization and the business that is being done so i couldn't catch the last part shall we so do you think that more people being able to have international conversations by remote working is going to have an impact on globalization as well from that perspective alone, I don't think so, because don't forget that we already had possessed the, the global communication infrastructure that, infrastructure that we had. So it wasn't the case that we could not communicate or connect with someone that was you know, around uh, the other part of the world. It's just that we were held back by either cultural biases, uh, work practices, uh, and just general tendency uh, to resist uh, significant change uh, in terms of changing anything major. So. You know, will it make us more globalized? I don't think so, because you were already globalized the way it counted. Uh, because you could already, I mean, you were already doing trade around the world. Um, but will it make it, I would say, more effective and cheaper to run businesses that are globalized? I think that uh, that will happen. Great, thanks. Um, Amy still has asked, do you think that companies will have much less power, money and less power compared to the current government? So there will be less lobbying from capitalists and more governmental control. Um, there will never be less lobbying from the capitalist, quote unquote, because we, are, by the way, all are part of the capitalist system. Uh, governments remain governments. Um, business people remain business people. Uh, you know, and don't forget, as human beings, we are all, you know, both blessed and plagued with having very short-term memories. So whatever we think is going to be the new norm forever and ever is never going to be the case. Okay, we will forget and we will revert back to the eternal dance between 
uh, fear and greed. Right now, we are full-on fear mode. Once that fear alleviates over the course of the next couple of years, believe me, we are going to slowly but surely get into the greed mode again. So uh, I don't think uh, the fundamental way of doing business will change, although in the short term, yes, governments will have to take a much larger role because they are paying for it. Iona Harrison has asked, will COVID-19 catalyze the retreat of the US as a global superpower? That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> judging by the way that the US is reacting uh, right now, I would say yes. Uh, but this was true even before COVID-19. And I want to be careful in saying this because US state is different than a US politician specifically. although. Uh, all of our actions have consequences. And um, COVID-19 has made very, um, I guess, I, plainly aware of the fragilities of certain nations uh, versus others, the capacity to deal with uh, the human cost and the financial cost, and, um, and the propensity of those nations to uh, offer a helping hand uh, to those uh, traditional allies uh, that that uh, you know uh, were a part of the the traditional liberal world order, um, so I think to that end, U.S. Um, has suffered a loss to her soft power, uh, but that was the case in any case before COVID nineteen uh, throughout the, the past uh, three years. If you follow the the, the foreign policy. Um, apparatus and, and the approach to what has been transpiring uh, around the world vis-a-vis -vis, uh, different international agreements uh, that U.S. have brokered previously, whether it's the JCPOA, which is the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, aka the Iran deal, uh, whether it's uh, you know the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, aka the China deal, you know U.S. versus China deal. Um, you know, uh, U.S. has withdrawn. Um, I guess to an extent from the global stage. And it's only natural that somebody else uh, will most likely try to take her place. Izzy Taylor has asked, could this crisis be a turning point to decrease the gap between the rich and the poor, both within and between countries? You know what? If we were all intent on doing so, it would be a perfect opportunity to do so um, just because you know this has leveled everyone and every sector and everything I would love to believe that um, that that would be the case however my sense uh, tells me otherwise because even pre-COVID-19 the world had the resources to be able to make it a better place a more fair place you know it is it is ridiculous and frankly criminal uh, to have a system whereby we have simultaneous obesity and hunger. You know, how does one explain that? And not because of lack of resources, it's because of lack of uh, political capital and the willingness to do so. So I would love to believe that, although um, I unfortunately think that will not be the case. So in uh, 2008, uh, Ray Dalio's famous uh, Pure Alpha Fund grew 9%. Um, and since the beginning of this year, that fund has fallen 20%. Um, how do you think COVID-19 has altered the established hegemony in the hedge fund asset management space? And will the big players be the same after the crisis? 
it's too soon to say. It's way too soon to say. Because I, I think one thing is for clear that in, a, in any crisis, uh, active managers do better than passive managers. Because look, it's easy to make money when everything is going up. It's only through real volatility and shock where um, you know, uh, more informed, uh, better positioned investors um, uh, kind of present themselves. I think it's fair to say in that case that it is better to, to go for quality on the way down uh, and then slowly by surely building up more higher yielding and structured products on the way up. Um, but short answer to your question is, it's way too early to, to call that. Ali Sai is asking, um, will the pandemic be used by governments to infringe human rights limit freedoms of individuals and monitor citizens more going forwards? <laughs> the short answer to that question is, or with a question, depends on which government you're talking about. I think um, to a certain extent, certain governments in the world have already started doing that. Um, you know, is it conceivable that certain uh, nations and certain governments will capitalize on this to to, to create a, uh, a more controlling ecosystem? Absolutely, I think it is. Um, do I think that is going to be the, uh, the norm around the world? I, I, I don't think so. I don't think it's in anyone's interest to really have uh, that feeling of over control. Although, again, going back to my earlier comments, uh, I do believe that this is going to be a catalyst for all of us to, to move towards uh, the digitalization of human beings. Now, that's not a governmental thing. It is just a fact of life. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, um, will some governments capitalize on this? I think so. Thanks. Um, Felicia Zhu has asked, um, what are you doing to change the structure of your portfolio investments in light of the upcoming recession and in response to COVID-19? Uh, well, again, look, uh, we are a private credit slash distressed uh, fund, and we have a significant advisory business in, uh, in tandem to that. So from my perspective, um, you know, provided that we can plug ourselves into a captive pool of LPs, um, and the structure is debatable, whether it will be in a fund structure or maybe perhaps a multifamily office structure that runs alongside our existing structure, um, but we are going to be looking to benefit from being able to um, pick up uh, certain assets um, when the price becomes right. And therefore, the most important thing there again is to be able to find the right investors and right LPs because it is going to take patience uh, and discipline. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, we have an investment on a biotech space in the US. That investment is doing quite well. And I think that space will pick up. So I think we are relatively well hedged, although uh, we could use, as most funds can, uh, more liquidity. We have a question from Baron Bald. How should startups raise capital under these conditions? Would you suggest to, what would you suggest um, to the entrepreneurs in this regard? I would suggest uh, for them to brace for impact. Because, um, you know, the competition for capital is going to become fierce. And, um, you know, I, think, I would like to think that a good idea will always sell. Um, but I would take the only suggestion that I can give, and again, this is a tough one, because 
um, you know, uh, if, if nothing else, we do live in an extremely dynamic world. I would suggest for those entrepreneurs to really take a hard look as to whether the idea that they had pre-COVID-19 still adds value, still is relevant, and does it solve a problem? And if the answer to that question is yes, it does, then um, I think uh, venture capital funding will still exist. Uh, it's just that right now people are panicking. So therefore, the priority may not necessarily be as much venture capital funding as it was prior to COVID-19. Quite a few people have been asking about real estate. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about what do you think will happen to commercial real estate and how will it be influenced by COVID-19? I think commercial real estate is the one area where we can make a reasonably uh, solid uh, guess in terms of the prospects. And that is not looking very good. Look, um, one of our partners uh, that also is an advisor to a major uh, UK energy company, uh, roughly about a month ago when we were still be able, able to kind of meet, had a meeting uh, and said, look, you know what? It was a trading floor with 400 people, but only 12 people were there but yet they were still making money. Now, does this mean that we are not going to need offices? No, it does not mean that. But does this mean that we are going to need as large an office for a firm? Absolutely not. This crisis was a litmus test for the global uh, IT communications infrastructure, which now we know is capable in handling working from home. Uh, also, this has allowed us to go again through this paradigm shift of, you know, can you work from home? Is it nice to work from home? So I think we are going to see a significant shift in terms of companies, maybe at the outset, incentivizing their employees to stay and work from home. You know, those people that are senior business leaders, that are front office people that need to still cultivate relationships with one another, yes, they will always need an office space. But Will the middle office, back office, infrastructure, IT teams need one? I don't think so. So therefore, I think we are in a significant uh, and uh, persistent decline in terms of commercial real estate space. That also presents opportunities alongside with it. Uh, if you're in a city like London where there is an acute shortage of residential housing stock, uh, one can imagine that uh, there will be projects around converting commercial uh, real estate into residential at some stage. Great. Um, so I know it's coming up to time, but we've had quite a few more questions. Um, so if we're okay. Sure, to go ahead. The yes, that's fine. Great. So um, a lot of people want me to ask Bill's question. So Bill Taylor has asked, um, do you think that the UK's decision to leave the EU puts it in a weaker or stronger I think, position to tackle the economic challenges that lie ahead? Would Brexit make it any easier for the UK to implement the required monetary measures? Look, that's a that's a good question, and that's very topical. And you know, it, it will <laughs> what I say may be divisive, uh, and I'm not debating the uh, the merit of Brexit or not merit of Brexit in this case. But look, uh, the challenges that UK executing Brexit would have given UK the power to be able to deregulate to lower taxes for corporates, and therefore play on the importance of London in particular as a hub for the financial services sector, plus uh, for technology innovation in different parts of the UK. Now, 
With COVID-19, what will become very difficult is for the government, and like other governments in the world, not to tax and increase taxes as a result. The money that we are getting right now is not free money. Someone will have to pay for that. And therefore, you know, all governments will look at uh, increasing taxes in one way, shape or another, which in the case of the UK and Brexit will uh, cause a problem. Simultaneously, I think um, we have all witnessed uh, that the European Union in its current format uh, does not necessarily function well. You know, and I think there Europe is going to find herself in a position where um, you know, uh, certain countries like Italy or Spain or Greece um, may decide to reevaluate how they want to be a part of the European Union. That doesn't mean that the EU will break up, even though Brexit has provided uh, a very, I guess, useful, if you will, uh, a precedent to, to do that divorce. But maybe EU will change. And I forecast, and I would think, if I, if I were a betting man, I would say that uh, a lot of the, uh, uh, the kind of non-Western, Western European countries will look at uh, coming out of the common currency. Uh, you know, it is very difficult for the European Central Bank to apply the right policies that is right for a country like Germany and France, and at the same time, a country like Greece and Portugal. So um, a long answer to your question, uh, it's both an opportunity and a huge challenge, but we will all see what happens. But I think people are, well, the, the dividing lines between different factions within the EU will become much more evident as a result. Okay, a question from Jack Spencer regarding ONG, how do you foresee the market for non-ENP infrastructure moving forward? Will private equity continue to pick up pipelines and terminals? or have the less than spectacular returns shifted focus? Look, I mean, that's a very technical and sector-specific question. Uh, what we can say about LNG, and I'm not an expert in LNG, by the way, so I'll kind of caveat on that, is that LNG will be required much more than, uh, obviously, oil. Uh, gas is, I mean, I, I think the future of LNG is, is, is quite bright. Um, you know, uh, the fact that we're all home, we are now spending much more time using computers much more, spending more electricity is a natural um, winning, um, I guess, um, uh, landscape for LNG and natural gas, uh, whereas not so much for oil, although they are kind of interlinked in a certain mechanism. Um, sorry, not quite that, oil and gas, not LNG. So was the question about oil and gas or LNG? Oil and gas, I think. Well, I mean, look, oil and gas, we are in a terminal decline just because uh, the consumer element had changed anyway, right? I mean, we are all looking at, looking at uh, driving electric cars in the future, um, you know, looking at more environmentally friendly sources of energy. So we already had passed peak demand, I think, in terms of consumption. Uh, so given COVID-19, and the significant drop in demand and the subsequent follow-up through supply cuts that will most certainly come through from OPEC plus countries, uh, I don't think there is going to be much need to invest in oil and gas or rather oil um, infrastructure. Because the fact of the matter is, are, are right now, uh, we are having issues with storage, uh, let alone uh, investing in the infrastructure to, to up supply. 
So I think oil and commodity-based countries, I would probably carve out LNG out of there, uh, are in for a long um, decline in terms of their revenues. And when it comes to countries that depend on a commodity economy to balance their budgets, and I'm looking at more GCC here, and there is a differentiation between GCC. I know we have Saudi friends in, uh, on the call. I don't know if there are any Qataris or other GCC nationals here, but for example, you know, given the fact that Saudi Arabia is a, a young, large country that has a chronic unemployment issue, the cost of the social contract in Saudi Arabia is significantly higher than, for example, say that of Oman or Qatar. So therefore, you know, uh, how do you pay for that? So uh, I think the monies that may have gone towards oil infrastructure in those countries may be well uh, diverted into uh, diversifying away from oil. Perfect. And I think as the final question in the interest of time, um, Rocco Damaro has asked, we live in uncertain times where fear and anger tend to take over. Bank loans are not the right solution for all businesses facing distress with COVID-19. Approving a small number of businesses so far is a failure by the banking sector to act in the national interest. Does it seem to you that we're facing a 2008 scenario again? We bailed them out back then. Is it not their turn to do their part now? Look, I absolutely agree that the banks are not doing anywhere close to enough right now. And I get angry and I'm an ex-banker and I'm part of the capitalist financing you know, sector, right? What the banks, the banks are right now making the mistake of thinking that it is up to them to disperse money to household balance sheets and small business balance sheets. It is not. This is a scenario where, again, we have to and governments have to recapitalize small business balance sheets, household balance sheets, and they're going to be paying for it. Banks are a conduit and the most effective conduit to do so. So I think there is a lag between what the governments want to do. And again, it, it is different in different countries. Certain countries are much better at that than you know, other countries, right? Um, but to answer this question, uh, yes, it is time. But this time, it's not the bank's money, it's the government's money. Number two, is it going to be a, a 2008 kind of scenario? No, it cannot be. Because what happened in 2008, again, is that the money that came really enriched the rich. This time, the money that gets dispersed will have to go in a much more equal, even footing, having the caveat there to say that it is going to be a toss-up between speed and accuracy. And I think most governments will take speed over accuracy. So will some benefits or some businesses or some wealthy people benefit from the cash that comes down from the government? Yes, but that's because we just don't have the time to be able to uh, make this a, a fine-tuned exercise in terms of who deserves it. We need speed, we need that money now, and we need banks to play ball. Great, thank you so much. Um, I think it's safe to say that everybody's found that very interesting. Um, I think that we might have to wrap up now. Um, but thank you to everybody as well for sending in all of your questions. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you very much. Yeah, and thank you so much, Ozan. Um, sure. And we look forward to having you again with the VC Society, maybe with another collaboration with QTech. Sure. But, and thanks everyone for tuning in.